Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, January 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, pediatric hospitalizations rise as COVID surges in the state. And we talk critical race theory with State House Minority Leader Robert Johnson III, a Democrat. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Omicron variant of COVID-19 is putting more kids in the hospital than previous strains of the virus. Right now, nearly 20 children are receiving care at Children's Hospital of Mississippi. Dr. Charlotte Hobbs is a professor of pediatric infectious disease and microbiology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. We seem to be having um, recurrence of a bad dream. We basically are having, again, um, several fold increase in the number of um, children who are requiring hospitalization uh, at the medical center. In particular, we are seeing uh, younger children. This particular strain anecdotally seems to be manifesting a little bit differently in younger children. There seems to be a little bit more of a component of upper airways disease, which is more um, dangerous for younger children because your windpipe is essentially the size of your pinky finger. So if you think about it, ask your child, if you have a child to look at their pinky finger, and that's the diameter of their windpipe, that if there's inflammation, obviously there can be compromised pretty quickly. So, you know, anecdotally, we're seeing a little bit more upper airways disease um, in younger children. And the majority of the children that we're seeing this time are children who have been eligible but have not yet been vaccinated. Are there any age age groups that are being impacted more than others in this pediatric age range? We are seeing um, a little bit of a shift again towards uh, a younger patient population. Pediatric hospitalizations for acute COVID nationwide are following parallel trends. Um, so now we're seeing this manifest more um, in the pediatric population. Um, specifically in children who are either not eligible for vaccination or those who have not been vaccinated yet. On top, I would like to mention that, you know, there's quite a bit of attention in the news these days given to, you know, the new antivirals that, um, you know, will be available for COVID. And the key there is the future tense um, that 
um, there is actually very um, right now limited supply of these antivirals and they're very difficult to get. Um, there are two. Um, one of them actually is under an emergency use authorization for children down to the age of 12, but um, they're, they're not readily available. Um, they're quite hard to get. And of course, right now, because there's limited supply, um, priority is, of course, being given to when it's you know more available will be given to patients in a stratified way in the sense that the highest risk patients, that is patients who are older, immune compromised will be um, the ones who will be at higher, highest risk. So they'll be the ones to receive this first. On top, we had um, a few different monoclonal antibodies that were available in the past few months, including to children under the age of 12 under emergency use authorization. And recent data released by the FDA has shown that um, those particular monoclonals, which we were using, are not effective against Omicron. So we're limited now to one monoclonal that looks like it um, does have activity that is available under an emergency use authorization for children out to age 12. But again, also there's very limited supply of that particular monoclonal antibody in the state. So it's a different situation now in the sense that we don't have these um, monoclonals really as readily available for prophylaxis or, you know, early intervention to reduce potential severe complications of disease. So in a nutshell, really, we need to continue to advocate for all of those who are eligible to get vaccinated to protect our children and also to vaccinate all children who are eligible to protect them um, because none of these therapies are a surrogate for protection or vaccination. Um, and on top, they're really not really widely available right now anyway. What would be your advice to parents for children that are not yet five years old who don't qualify for a vaccine? And when the CDC says that children under the age of two should not be wearing face masks? Everyone in those families should be vaccinated um, to protect the children against the transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Of course, the virus that causes COVID-19, um, in addition, you know, continue to abide by CDC and Department of Health recommendations, which do advise continued use of um, masks, certainly in indoor settings. And we also continue as a pediatric community to advise um, and strongly recommend the use of masks in schools as a public health initiative to protect our children. Um, it's so important, I think, to recognize that we're almost two years into this pandemic and we basically have to live with it now and eventually, hopefully, you know, there'll be perhaps less waves of these new variants as a greater proportion of the population does become vaccinated on a worldwide level. But we know what to do to keep ourselves safe and our children safe and to go about our lives as, you know, best as we can. I think the messaging here should be we know what to do to live our lives and keep our kids safe. So let's do it. I was hoping you could help paint a picture for us what it's like for the parents and children that are hospitalized or that are in the hospital right now. What are parents saying? What are the children that are there saying about their experience having COVID in the pediatric hospital? I think the unfortunate recurring theme is that by the time it gets to that point, many people um, do wish that they had, you know, been vaccinated or had their children vaccinated. We're at a point in the pandemic as well where we're seeing people um, reinfected with SARS-CoV-2 and there is a general erroneous sort of spread of misinformation from, unfortunately, some in the medical community as well, which um, indicates that people who 
um, have had natural infection with SARS-CoV-2 don't need to get vaccinated. And that, in fact, is um, entirely not true um, because we already know that people can get reinfected. So the general sense is, I think, unfortunately for these parents, one of perhaps a degree of maybe um, feeling as if they wish they had um, vaccinated their children. Um, Perhaps some of these um, people are the victims of misinformation, such as what I've just mentioned. So it's really important to convey the message on behalf of the medical community, CDC, Department of Health, um, all of these um, agencies. um, And we as a pediatric community in the Mississippi American Academy of Pediatrics all continue to strongly advocate um, vaccination for all who are eligible to curb the spread of SARS-CoV-2 and reduce the burden of disease in our population and let us get back to um, some degree of living our lives as normally as possible in the context of a pandemic. I think people keep asking, when are we going to get back to normal? And, you know, the sooner that everyone is vaccinated and, you know, is able to employ these public health measures to reduce transmission, you know, the sooner there will be that light of normalcy at the end of the tunnel. Since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been word that children aren't affected as much by the coronavirus as others. What are your thoughts about that as you see these rising trends, as we see the Omicron variant spread faster than any other variant to thus far? You know, how, what would you be your advice to parents or your thoughts right now on that? I think that, um, again, it's a question of numbers. And so I think there is, you know, some information that we are seeing that this variant perhaps will not manifest as severely, you know, uh, as commonly as other variants have, certainly in the adult populations. That's based on limited data. So let me say that as a caveat so far. But again, the proportion of a larger number is a larger number. And so even though children, you know, less frequently get severely ill with SARS-CoV-2 infection, this strain is hyper-transmissible, hyper-hyper-transmissible. We said Delta was hyper-transmissible. This one's hyper-hyper-transmissible. And so what we are seeing is, again, this proportion of a larger number being a larger number. So even though it's less common that children seem to be getting as sick as frequently with acute SARS-CoV-2 infection with noted exceptions, Just by the fact that we see so many more infections, that proportion, even though it's unlikely of a larger number, is a larger number. So it's important, again, to underscore the importance of doing all we can to protect children against transmission. And the simple act of wearing a mask while inside in the public setting, the simple act of getting tested if you have symptoms, the simple act of abiding by Mississippi State Department of Health and CDC recommendations, to protect our children, especially those who are not eligible for vaccination, seems to be a really, um, you know, obvious answer to me. Um, Unfortunately, again, though, um, I think that when um, people hear in the news that the strain is maybe not as bad, they don't understand that doesn't mean it's not as bad all around, again, in terms of numbers, that even, again, proportion of a larger number is a larger number. So we are seeing, again, this rise in the numbers of pediatric hospitalizations, similar in a sense to what we saw with Delta and the fact that, again, even though children, even with Delta, did not as commonly get as severely ill as adults did, we saw this dramatic number of children who were sick at the Children's Hospital in August, even children without previously you know, underlying conditions, normal healthy kids coming in with very severe acute disease. So again, because this proportion of large numbers, large number, it's important to remember that 
um, even though children don't as commonly seem to get as severely ill, this variant seems to be, again, so incredibly transmissible that there's just by a question of sheer numbers, we are seeing more cases. Dr. Charlotte Hobbs is a professor of pediatric infectious disease and microbiology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Hobbs, thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention to this. Coming up, a prominent state Democrat sounds off on the critical race theory debate. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. One issue that's dominated conversation heading into this year's legislative session is critical race theory, which is a school of thought that understands racism in America as structural and systemic. Over the past several months, prominent Republicans in the state have voiced concerns about the theory that it may be influencing public school curricula. Here's House Speaker Philip Gunn at the Neshoba County Fair. Another socialist agenda item that's being pushed is critical race theory. It's just an attempt to introduce racism into our schools. Ladies and gentlemen, every society, we know the history of every society that has embraced racism has failed. Democratic leaders in the state have largely steered clear of the issue thus far, but Robert Johnson III, who's the State House Minority Leader for Democrats, tells MPB's Michael Gidry he's frustrated by the rhetoric around it. I think it's a non-issue. I think it's a ghost issue. I think it's a, a just a, a issue that's been created and perpetuated by Republicans to have something to fight about or argue about without dealing with real issues. And so I've, as a Democratic leader in the House, I've encouraged my members, don't spend any time talking about critical race theory. We have really pressing problems that uh, Republicans won't, won't deal with. You know, squelching anti-racist behavior or criticizing racist behavior is not a new thing in Mississippi. I mean, you know, we were a slave state. Uh, when abolitionists were trying to help slaves become free, people were actually killed just for saying slavery is wrong. And then after slavery was gone, uh, they they spent, uh, you know, white supremacists and white races spent a great deal of the turn of the century trying to deprive African-Americans of, of a right to a public education and, and burn down schools and discourage people from teaching African-Americans. So Squelching speech, especially speech that says racism is wrong, is not is not new in the state of Mississippi. I mean, you could literally black people would be quoting the Constitution saying I have a right to vote and literally get lynched and hanged for just simply saying, will you please do what's right? So this is not a new thing. An idea that somehow, uh, you know, there there is something out there that they have to stop because it's creating division. Mississippi is a living laboratory, a living laboratory for critical race theory, critical race action. We are li- living laboratory of systemic racism. You, it, we live in a state where the leadership literally look day in and day out at levels of poverty that are just shocking. And when leaders like myself would say, or when representatives or senators would say, hey, we got to do something about this. This is where these people, these are the people we represent. This is where we live. And they say, no, we don't need to spend money that Democrats voted on to send down here to help people. Republicans don't want they, they're literally holding on to it and don't want to do anything to help anybody with it. When 38 percent of the of, of the African-American population in this state uh, live in, in, in poverty, 38 percent of the people in co- of color. And that's that that 30, 32 percent of them are African-American, 25 percent 
are Hispanic Americans, or 38% are American Indians, all live in poverty. And all those, all those levels of, of poverty eclipse what the national average is. I mean, national average for African Americans is 22%. We're 32% in this state. And so you can only reason from that that why, why, why don't you want to raise the minimum wage? Why don't you want to have a guaranteed minimum wage? Why don't you want to make sure that women have equal pay? Why don't you want to do economic development west of I-55 in the Delta or southwest Mississippi where the majority of people who live there are African Americans? Why is it you don't want to invest in infrastructure like new water systems or, or I mean, not with no, water systems is a new thing we're talking about, but we had an 87 highway plan, and in the, the areas where African Americans live, they still haven't, com, haven't completed those areas where African Americans live. And, and what it, whatever anybody tells you, if you don't invest in infrastructure, you can't have economic development. And they literally choking the life out of the area where African Americans live. And you're going to tell me that's not systemic racism? You're afraid of it being taught when you're perpetuating it in your actions every day. If I wanted to teach critical racism, I wouldn't say put it in curriculum, which it never will be. It's a, it's a legal class that I was a lawyer. Nobody, We never even had that class in law school, so it's a new thing. You can't teach it to secondary schools or elementary schools. But why do we need to teach it in Mississippi? Just bring anybody from anywhere in the world and let them sit in a 90-day legislative session and listen to the governor of this state and some other leaders of the state literally perpetuate the idea that there's nothing we need to do for people of color in this state and continue to perpetuate a system that keeps them down. We're about to pass medical marijuana and make billionaires out of white business people and won't even entertain the idea of expunging the records or releasing people who did the same thing for years that harmed, really harmed nobody and keep people of color who make up 80% of the people who are locked up for this, for, for, for having marijuana or selling marijuana. You're not willing to at least entertain the idea of finding some, some relief for those people so they can be integrated back in society. But you're going to suddenly take something that, would, that still is illegal right now that may not be illegal in a couple of months because we're going to pass a law that says it's okay and make billionaires out of people when you have robbed just the whole life away from people, simply because they're people of color. And we say, let's take those people out and let them go. But why would you do that? Because then you would be taking money, again, a racist act, taking money away from white business people who run this private prison complex. That's the only reason not to do it. So, you know, this whole idea that we don't want it, we got to make sure they don't create division. You create division every day in this state and don't care about doing anything about it. Nowhere, think about the leadership in this state. They all live in Hines County and Rankin County. Nobody in those areas have to drive 40 miles to get to an emergency room. But all these poor areas and rural areas, majority of which where African Americans live, hospitals are closing. We have the lowest uh, ratio of doctors per patient in the country, and especially in areas uh, where people of color live. So this whole idea that we got something we need to stop, I tell you what, why don't you just stop being racist and then we won't have to worry about teaching critical racism or anybody, the history of it. Why don't you just stop doing it and we won't have that problem? You are House Minority Leader. As a leader in the in the state legislature, it, it seems that there's a bit of a paradox here because uh, you say that, you know, you, you've kind of talked to your members and saying we don't want to talk about this because it's a non-issue and that critical race theory is not taught in secondary schools. It is an obscure legal theory. Uh, but at the same time, it is the words critical race theory uh, have been kind of inflated to include any 
critical look at 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 our state's history or well, at any history. Well, so, how do you how, how do you handle well, that paradox? Because it's not much of a paradox. I mean, we don't teach it now. I mean, what what are you banning? You're banning something we don't teach anyway. I mean, I grew up uh, being taught in music class, spin around, jump down, pick a bag of cotton. I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, I, I you know, I we don't look. We teach our kids what they need to understand about living in this society in Mississippi. I guess we my teach them. I guess my question I, I is. No, my, my, my point is, I understand exactly what your question is. What do you do if they're saying ban it? My, my, my point is, if we, engage, if we spend the half the legislature, there are probably over 20, 25 bills that have been introduced on banning critical race theory. And what people would like for me to do is not spend my time with that, I've, that I've been successful in being able to work with the leadership of the House who have been accommodating and dealing with some of the issues I just talked about. They at least will listen now. But they want to spend my time creating a division, talking about something that's not an issue in my community. There's not an issue that we're concerned about. If I, to, if I went home in, in, a 90, in District 94 and told them, well, I, I spent 90 percent of my time in the legislature or 50 percent of my time in the legislature, make sure that we, 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 they, they weren't able to ban critical race theory when they still have roads they can't get back, to the, back and forth to work on, when the unemployment rate is still double digits and I hadn't done anything about that or hadn't encouraged the leadership to do anything about that. I, you know, I'm not doing my job. So, you know, if they have a critical race theory bill, we'll vote against it. But in terms of creating a, a issue that we're going back and forth and, and, and spending the kind of time I was spending on an issue to try to get something done by, by making sure the rules apply, I'm going to do some of that. But my job is right now we got a medical crisis in this state. We have a unemployment crisis in this state. We have a wage disparity in this state. We have a serious poverty issue, an infrastructure uh, issue in this state. I, I, you know, I'm not going to be distracted by somebody looking for a political platform to, to, to raise a zeal in some nutcases that support them about something that, that, that they literally, uh, all they're doing is making the case that, oh, yeah, 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 I guess you don't want to talk because this is who you are. So the paradox is, is just what I'm doing now. You're the only person that I've actually said that. I mean, people have asked me to talk about it. I said, look, i got other things to deal with. But I will spend time enough time to talk about it in the way I'm talking about it now. But in terms of, of uh, you know, the critical race theory is not the problem. The racism that exists now is the problem. So, and that, that is borne out in the actions that literally result in the conditions that people are living in right now. It's the same thing that Martin Luther King talked about 60 years ago. Uh, 70 years ago when he was trying to, when he started the movement and said that, and he was leading garbage workers in, in, in Memphis before he was assassinated because that was about wages and opportunity and, and better lifestyle and freedom, economic freedom. And they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about something that doesn't exist. So the, you're right. There is a paradox because I got people who support me uh, who are academics who say, this is something we need to deal with. We need to meet it head on and get fine. We'll spend five minutes meeting your head on, but the rest of the time, there are people who literally don't. Uh, hospitals about to close. There are people who really who can't take care of their families because they don't have jobs, and we got to do something about that. And it's all born out of this, this, this maintaining a status quo that's born out of the same systemic racism they don't want people to talk about. Robert Johnson is the State House Democratic Minority Leader. We'll hear more from him on tomorrow's show. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB. Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio Live from our studios in Jackson. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. At 10, it's in legal terms. 11 o'clock, you can hear Don't. Well, Southern Remedy. I was going to say don't miss it, but 
please listen to Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. We'll see you tomorrow at 830 for the next edition of Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.